0: Welcome to this episode of ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security and defense contracting updates, and our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Cleared Cast. For this episode, we are joined by the Partnership for Public Service, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that strives to revitalize the federal government by transforming the way it works and inspiring a new generation to serve. So, we're excited to interview Lauren DeJean Schulman, the Vice President of Research Analysis and Evaluation. So, in this role, Lauren provides strategic vision and oversight for the organization's research that's centered on improving the management and performance of the federal government. Lauren certainly has experience in that. Prior to the Partnership for Public Service, she spent her career advising U.S. government officials on strategic planning, crisis management, international affairs, and you've also served in key roles like the National Security Council, the Department of Defense today we're going to be chatting about how the start of a new administration is really a great opportunity for federal agencies to take a fresh look at their programs, identify what's working, maybe what hasn't worked in the past, and strive to improve the results for the betterment of the American people. So Lauren, thank you so much for joining me today for this episode.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It's a great combination of all the things I love about government talking about how to uh, improve government process but also with an audience like yours who has a lot of interest in and participation in
0: national security stuff. Wonderful. Yes, certainly our audience is going to find a lot of, you know, the findings in your research Pretty interesting. So tell us a little bit about the process or motivation for developing a nudge in the right direction, how understanding human behavior can lead to more effective government. Give us, you know, an overview for folks who may not be familiar with that.
1: Absolutely. So let me start really back up a little bit in terms of the the process we went through. Leaders in government often lack access to really good, robust performance information about their organizations or the programs that they run in government or the effectiveness of those programs. They may bring... A tremendous amount of experience or ideas or knowledge about the issues that they work on. But quite often, in my experience, whether it be in the situation room or in an embassy or even on the floor of Congress, they do a lot of things by instinct. They they make a lot of choices by their gut. And you know, that's a great way based on their own experiences. That's a great way to start. But I think most federal leaders that I've worked with and probably that you've engaged with would agree that data would help them make their choices a lot better. But I think many of them, including myself, when I served in government, they struggle with determining what data exactly can they access and how can they access this and how is it most relevant to the decisions that they need to make. I think government's goals are improved public goods and services. They're not better financial returns. They're not a faster car. They're not a more efficient computer. So it makes measuring them and managing performance a lot harder. But one thing government can work to understand better, and really anyone can, but this is really important for government, is how people process information from government or how they make decisions about using government services or what incentivizes them to actually comply with federal guidelines. And it's easy for government leaders, I put anyone in this situation, but it's particularly easy for government leaders who have really in-depth experience to say, how might I respond to this situation and then make choices based on that? But frankly, it's not a lot more difficult or much more expensive to study the behavioral insights that are relevant to all stakeholders for a government program. It has a lot better odds of really improving the effectiveness of that program and make sure that it's relevant to everyone, not just the individual who's leading that individual program. To start to address this, the partnership collaborated with Grant Thornton, one of our incredible partners, to convene experts over the course of several months from our own government and from organizations around the world and how they're using behavioral insights to improve government performance. How are they understanding how humans process information, how they react to it, how they make choices to help us design government that is more effective?
0: And it's really interesting. I think any industry, it makes sense that government is transitioning into relying on data because every other industry is doing it. Data analytics and data science is certainly a career that has been around for some time now, a few years now, but is growing. So it makes sense that the government is transitioning into sort of a research-based making decisions based on data. So what behavioral insights did you find, or how can they make government more effective?
1: Great question. So first, let me talk a little bit about
0: what behavioral insights are,
1: because it's one of those things where it sounds very intuitive, but then it also ends up being difficult to actually apply in practice. What they're meant to do, the field of behavioral insights is meant to open a window on how people process information and how they make choices. And I'm gonna use an example that's at the beginning of the report, because I think it's a really great example. The Center for Civic Design has done some great work studying and then explaining to people how humans interact with ballots in elections and how to improve ballot design so that it really does reflect people's actual choices in the democratic process and not their misunderstanding or not their frustration or not what they inadvertently do because things are not lined up well or they're not grouped well so that people will complete them. That's just one example of how behavioral insights show that decisions are shaped by the way things are presented to us. And government has a real interest in motivating people to make informed choices or good choices or legal choices or to complete the things that they are supposed to do. And again, this, this seems intuitive, but there, it's so often in life that we don't follow these basic precepts. There's a really great framework that the, an organization called the Behavioral Insights Team, which is a British organization that uses behavioral insights first in the British government they that they've done work around the world too that where they think that people are motivated to do things when they are easy when they are attractive meaning that it's something that draws them or is tailored for them when they are social, people are motivated by things that their peers do or that their peers know about them. And timely, people like to do things that make sense or group together either all at one time, or they are motivated to do things around certain times of the year. So think about like New Year's resolutions or birthdays, or when you start a new job. When you follow this framework, they, they abbreviate to the EAST framework, you can approach government services in a different sort of way, as opposed to it being uh, related to the convenience or the understanding of the person designing the program. You can really think through, how is it, can I think it through all the stakeholders that I have to work with this, in this program and make sure that they, first of all, understand what is available to them, that they're able to make informed choices and that they do this in a way that is most effective and productive for those stakeholders. So that can impact how government helps people sign up for health care. Think about healthcare.gov. There's been all kinds of examples about how that process was at first very difficult for people to use and very disincentivizing. But it's changed a lot and it's grown and learned a lot over time. It can also be used to think through how people apply for financial aid, like when they go to college. If they complete a job application and do all the things that they need to do in order to actually go through all the wickets at USA Jobs, or even how they offer accurate information about their taxes, it's sort of remarkable how peer pressure, which I think is another way to think of it in some of these cases, in telling people that other people are complying with this rule or other people have provided this information will incentivize people to
0: act a little bit differently. It sounds like using this type of research is certainly a government that I would appreciate since it is thinking about all of the stakeholders. So through these workshops, what are some of the other highlights that the partnership discovered?
1: There's so many of them, both at the state and federal level. I'll give some of my favorite examples. And I should also mention that there's some great resources that I'll talk about in a minute in in the federal government to help agencies do this. One I, I really liked was the National School Lunch Program several years ago. I think it was in 2016. I could have the year wrong. So National School Lunch Program, which is part of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, they revised their income verification and application process by using much simpler language. And they added a visual summary of the materials that a household has to share in order to qualify for the program. They did different things to remind the the possible beneficiaries of the program that they can take pictures of the documents or they can submit them via email instead of having to do anything in person or send copies over the mail. Basically, they, they did what they could to understand, like, why were people who were qualified for this program and who seemed to want to sign up for it, why were they not signing up for it all the way? And the Office of the Evaluation Sciences, which is part of GSA, the General Services Administration, helped them with this. And they estimated just this revised letter, which, again, didn't cost much, wasn't difficult to implement. It increased the response rate by about 2.1%, which sounds small. But when you're talking about a program that impacts more than 30 million children, that's a huge impact for those families and for those kids. And like, if you think through it, I mean, government gives you a tremendous amount of information in almost anything that you're doing. And if you are doing so for an issue that either has you under duress or is stressful or requires you to do additional work, the language that is used and the approach that you use really makes a difference in people's ability to actually interact with that program. So often people assume like, well, of course, people would sign up for something if they're qualified. And that is just generally not the case if you approach people where they are and understand why or why not they are making certain choices you can help them make better informed choices and help them make sure that they are either signing up for or understanding or making informed choices about this sort of thi- the sort of things that they have access to via the federal government oh so i think there's just a couple of other smaller examples you can get people to s- complete a form just by simplifying the language or making it shorter As I was saying before, people like to act on things or make big changes in their lives at really receptive points, like a transition point, like birthdays or a new year. And even just like putting somebody's name in an email or in a text message gets their attention in a way that just a generic form will not. And as another example, the Department of Education worked with some outside researchers to send personalized text messages over the summer to college accepted students. Uh, to remind them of the tasks they needed to complete in order to be ready for college in the fall, mostly like completing financial aid paperwork and things like that. And that, again, was another success where you got a significant number of students who otherwise might have not completed that those steps and not uh, gone into college in the fall to complete those steps over the summer with those sorts of reminders. I think the the, the thing I would say, though, an important thing to consider as you're thinking about how to use behavioral insights is to make sure you're actually trying to study a problem that is behaviorally based. If that the problem with Program enrollment is that the requirements are too strict, or that people don't like the program for a particular reason. Those are not necessarily behavioral. That may be because you have set the regulations around it are too difficult. But if it's that signing up for it is too challenging, or that there's disincentives to signing up for it, then that's a behavioral thing that you can study and help people understand better what what is available to them.
0: Sure, access. I think when it comes to government programs, is something. Really important to keep in mind, but this is more of a psychological type, uh, even information issue. And, and in a period of information overload, it's important to make sure that for the betterment of you know, of the American people, if they do have access to these programs, making sure that they do have all of the information, it is easy to sign up for some of these programs. So having better informed decision making that's obviously, it's important to improve their programs. So if an agency is looking at their specific programs, why is it important for them to incorporate behavioral insights?
1: Well, as I was saying before, I think it's always important to understand like if it's if you're the challenge you're looking at is really behavioral in nature. But, well, like once you're thinking that through, let me give an example. The, at the Department of Veterans Affairs, a lot of leaders and employees there are themselves veterans, and that provides, a real tremendous benefit to the agency to have their perspective. However, I think there's so many different populations of veterans who have different needs and different perspectives and different reasons for wanting to work with the VA, whether it be post9/11 veterans or women underrepresented people or people of color, the Vietnam era veterans uh, have very different needs and very different needs and very different interactions with a VA than somebody who served in Iraq in 2009, but it's the same agency. So it would be simple for a leader in in veteran health to think, you know, here's how I might approach this program. Here's why I might or might not use it. And that Their perspective is really useful to be able to lend to that program, but it doesn't represent all veterans. There's a a risk of any federal leader, particularly one with a lot of experience in their field, either mirroring their own interests and their own way that they would interact with government or othering and making inaccurate assumptions about how other diverse populations may interact with government in some way. So I think it's first a really important way to reflect the diversity of America and the diversity of perspectives and stakeholders that may interact with government that are all coming from very different places and very different understanding of the role of government in their lives before making choices around how to present choices and present information. All that being said, though, I think even going in with this perspective, it's really important to test when you make changes that you think are behaviorally informed, to test whether or not it actually resulted in better outcomes. Or maybe the old way of doing some things might have actually been better. Sometimes it doesn't actually make the impact that you want it to have, or may actually make th- have made things more difficult. That's why it's really important to set up randomized controlled tests in some ways so that you know if you send out new wording in a letter or if you do the email differently, if you do the sign up differently, or you have the social worker present information differently, to know whether or not that made a difference. And people shouldn't consider when it doesn't make a difference, don't consider that a failure. That's new information about how government is succeeding or not in its own program effectiveness. And again, testing the use of behavioral insights and understanding their impact is fairly i don't want to say always low risk but it's always low cost and it's it's something where there it does a lot of good and i can't think of any harm in trying to understand what is the impact of pursuing some of these behavioral insights choice or behavioral insight program effectiveness and what is the impact of us testing new methods here.
0: Great point that just like an intelligence analysis, you know, it's not a failure if you find that something isn't confirmed. That's new information. So I love, I love that piece. One of the interesting findings personally that I thought was the Office of Management and Budget and the Office of Evaluation Sciences that you referenced increased the number of federal job seekers who voluntarily submitted demographic information in their application And I know you referenced the application process, uh, and I'm sure that behavioral insights can be incorporated there. Why is this important? And are there other examples that you can share that may relate to our security cleared audience?
1: Good question. Let me explain a little bit how that they made that change and then why it's important for job seekers, both for job seekers, for government and for the American people overall. This is an example of what's known as changing the defaults. And people probably encounter this all the time when they're signing up for on new websites or uh, signing up for apps or things like that. If you change the default, it can make it Easier uh, for people to act in ways that either benefit themselves or benefit the company that they're working with or benefit the government agency that they're working with. And in this case, what they did was instead of requiring applicants to take an additional step of attaching their demographic profile to job applications, the demographic profile was automatically attached, like from the beginning. In order to use this form, you had to like sign up and say, here's my demographic information. And the default was that for any new job application, it would then be attached. And the reason that this was important is that it's important for federal agencies to know who is applying for jobs. That way, they can make sure that the job announcements are actually reaching and appealing to a wide cross-section of the population and ensure that their workforce is representative of the population it serves. So, I think in the national security space in particular, it's been an important thing for me and I know for you and a lot of your listeners to think through, are we representing the diversity of America? Are people of color, are women, are other underrepresented populations accessing and understanding national security careers, as well as the standard national security or defense personnel, which tends to be for a number of reasons, white men. And if you learn that you have a lot smaller numbers of women who are applying or smaller numbers of people of color or otherwise, what is it you can do to change that? How can you make those careers or this process for applying more appealing to them? And I I think that's incredibly important information for us to know in terms of thinking about the pipeline of talent coming into government. I think there's there's some other examples that I'll mention that are, are relevant for lots of folks, but I'll also think of, I'll also mention a few ways that I think the cleared community could use this. Some other examples are you've probably experienced yourself, like when you're applying for a driver's license in a new state, you might be automatically opted in to a state's organ donation program, or you might be automatically registered to vote. And that varies state by state. But I think that uh, many of us who works in governments in cleared environments or have worked in contractors in cleared environments know how difficult it is in some cases to comply with all the regulations related to having a security clearance, whether it be reporting travel or reporting uh, meetings with foreign nationals or, or other issues that are just related to keeping up your security clearance. The more difficult that you make this for people, the less likely it is for them to comply. If you use behavioral insights to understand, you know, what is it that's difficult about this process? What it, is it that is disincentivizing? What is it that is forcing people to either delay it or postpone it or not be as accurate as they might be? Understanding that will both improve compliance, but also improve people's desire and willingness to participate in that program. Another one that I'm sure will be, uh, goes to the heart of many of the listeners, is travel systems. So, like the defense travel system is and has been for, I think, my entire professional career, a real pain to deal with. Uh, and as a result, people, it takes them forever to sign up. They t- tend to rely on others to do it, they tend to take forever to get reimbursements. And again, like thinking through how people approach these choices, what it is that the, the reason that it is easier or not for them to do basic compliance with DTS regulations or anything else like that would both improve the user experience, which I think is important, but also improve how government spends its money, how government uses its resources and how government you know, enables its personnel to do their jobs on a day to day basis.
0: You know, I know that it takes the government a little longer in terms of retooling, in uh, investing in new technology. And it sounds like some of the issues that our listeners that I've probably run into in supporting defense contractors or working in the DoD, it sounds like a combination of you know government tech and not understanding behavioral insights. And I'm really interested to hear your opinion um, because certainly for the security clearance process and what you referenced with the VA, I think investing in this type of research at, is really important. And I'm interested to hear if you think that is in the near future. But is there a way that defense contractors or private companies might be able to use some of this research that you found for federal agencies and apply it to their own to be more effective?
1: Absolutely. I think that a lot of agencies will find that there are great resources that they already have within their agency to help them with this. And if not, they is an organization uh, I mentioned earlier within GSA called the Office of uh, Evaluation Sciences. And they team up with agencies to identify policies and programs that might benefit from behavioral insights. And they have completed, I think, more than 70 projects in the last five years or so, six years or so. With several agencies. Um, but this is just a drop in the bucket. Um, there's obviously like, it could be an enormous demand for this. And I think that um, the government could benefit from when they, you know, a- almost creating like a checklist for themselves as they are doing audits of their own programs and evaluations of their own programs or beginning new programs to ask basic questions, like we mentioned at the beginning of this report, like, are we making this uh, are we following that the East framework of uh, making things easy or social or timely for people as they uh, as they develop programs develop programs in this space? Um, I think there's a lot that government can learn from the private sector. I mean, the private sector has been applying methods like this in a lot of different forms. But government can also should be taking through its own approaches because its mission is so different it's I mean public goods and services and the benefit of the American people is a slightly different motivation than trying to get somebody to sign up for a newsletter or trying to get somebody to sign up for um another another year of h b o or something like that. But there's parallels there that I think that people um, that people in government can think through and try to learn from in terms of their their peers in the private sector um the and I guess the last thing I'd say is that in some ways, this sounds, this both sounds in the, the process of behavioral insights or the uh, the, uh, the concept of behavioral insights can both sound very simplistic, like, no, obviously, duh, of course, you wouldn't want to think about how humans interact with this. But it's so—it's actually so rare that people begin to ask those questions of themselves, like when they're designing a program, um, and it can even sign in some cases a little academic or a little, um, little challenging or a little uh, distancing as you think about how to apply it. So, how you approach leaders in um, in talking through how do I use behavioral insights is an important step to think through. I think. Uh, you know, giving people examples that are approachable and easy and accessible for them or helping explain this concept to them in terms that are, um, uh, that, uh, you know, kind of go to the place that they are will really help leaders and government make choices and help maybe support the use of behavioral insights in a way that they had not either had not known was possible before or had not thought was worth investing in before. Um, And I I will again come back to this, uh, my point I made at the beginning this is a fairly low cost way to improve programs, to understand, to to dedicate yourself to understanding how people are making choices, understanding and processing information.
0: That buy-in from leaders, certainly important when it comes to investing, even if it's low cost, that buy-in is really important. And the collaboration between government, you know, DOD industry, and I think like you said, even the private sector, there are some things that we can apply there to uh, make our programs more effective. So, uh, you know, last point, uh, I, I, we alluded to it a little bit, but um, toward the end of the report, it says when it comes to the potential impact of this approach, we're closer to the starting line than the finish line. Uh, so could you explain a little bit about uh, what the team meant by that? And what do you hope this inspired, inspires leaders to do?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, we the workshops that the partnership held on this topic over the course of 2020 um, had you know hundreds of people show up in in different forums to learn more about behavioral insights. And there was a lot of interest. But I, I want to be clear that people and that people were really excited to learn about it. But for many of them, this was a totally new concepts, and they were excited about the new things that they could do with this information, with the programs, with the tools that they had available to them, and with the potential to collaborate with the Office of Evaluation Sciences at GSA or other organizations within them. Um, the, and they had, so the, as the topic was new, and these federal leaders hadn't been able to apply these tools in their work yet. So, I think there's a real opportunity for those that participate in these workshops or those who are learning about this now to try to think through how they could try something new and test whether or not it worked in their own government programs that they're working with. And if it didn't work, that's fine. Completely normal part of the experimentation process. Go back to the drawing board and use that knowledge that you gained uh, from that experiment to see what else might we be able to do to make this program more accessible, to make this choice more discernible, and to make compliance with this regulation um, easier. there's a lot of iteration that can occur in this. And the, the nice thing about applying this is that it often means pretty small changes that can be done quickly and in, in, inexpensively that have a real and significant impact on the populations that you are hoping to benefit. There's not a tend to lose, um, and there's a trend am- tremendous amount to gain uh, with, the, with this concept of thinking through the customer, the stakeholder, the participant, the federal employee, and how that they are interacting with these choices.
0: Yes, sounds intuitive, but certainly a little more complicated. So Lauren, where can folks uh, find a little more information or dive into this report a little bit further? If you go
1: to ourpublicservice.org and look for our recent report, A Nudge in the Right Direction, How Understanding Human Behavior Can Lead to More Effective Government, you will learn a tremendous amount about behavioral insights and have the opportunity to find out more about the partnership's work in data and evidence in the federal government.
0: That's all we have time for today. Be sure to follow us. Click that subscribe button. As always, if you have any thoughts or questions about security clearances, career advice, or you want us to dive into a specific topic, send us a note at editor at clearancejobs.com.